It is so good to be with you guys this morning. If this is your first time here, my name is Garrison and I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas Dayton. Uh, We're so glad that you're here this morning. Uh, Thank you for joining us as we close this Advent season together on the last Sunday of Advent and prepare to celebrate Christmas. Um, If you want to turn in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 4, Ruth chapter 4, we have been walking through the book of Ruth for the last several weeks, and we come to the last chapter and verses of the book of Ruth this morning, and uh, we are glad to be able to do so. It has been a beautiful book. It's a beautiful story about an ordinary family and their extraordinary suffering, and how God has sovereignly, providentially worked in their midst to bring about their redemption, but not only their redemption, our redemption, which is a message we need, a message of hope that we need so desperately as a people. So if you're at Ruth 4, we're going to start reading now. Let's listen to the word of God with reverence and with joy, for this is the voice of our King. Ruth 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging, To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon, also Ruth the Moabite. The widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. 
So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse Father David. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, with the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all of our hearts, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we come to the very last chapter of Ruth. And while it it kind of starts off at the ground level, it's a very earthy and ordinary scene, this chapter kind of goes to show us that there's a a bigger picture at work here in the book of Ruth. might remind us of the very last scene of the the movie, uh, Ants. If you've seen that movie, Ants, it's this animated movie about a high-strung, kind of neurotic ant worker named Z, in his strenuous efforts to win the affection of this princess ant and to save their colony from being destroyed. It's pretty epic. There's fighting and action and romance and drama and and comedy and the rest of it. And it all takes place within this, this ant colony, which might be to us tiny, but to them it's the whole world. But then at the very end of the movie, the camera kind of pans out to show that Z and this this colony and the entirety of this story has been taking place on this very small anthill in Central Park in the massive metropolis New York City. Thus, the the ending camera work invites those watching to, to consider... That this kind of parallels between the the microcosm of this story. There are parallels between this microcosm of a story and the lives of real people in this ginormous story. It invites us to consider that this smaller story about Z and this colony is actually taking place within this much bigger world with a much bigger story going on and being told. And as we dig into Ruth 4 this morning, we see the author employing a similar kind of tactic. We see the conclusion of the story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. We see it on the ground level. But then the camera pans out, as it were, to give us a kind of 30,000-foot view of what's going on here. Because when you take a step back, you see that Ruth is a smaller story that's actually taking place within a much bigger story. 
And that Ruth story this, and this larger story at work are actually being told by this gracious and loving sovereign God who is working all things out for the glory of his name and for the good of his people. When you take the 30,000 foot view, you see it's actually pointing us to this larger story, a story that God is providentially telling about the redemption of his people. So let's dig in this morning. The big idea in Ruth 4 here is that God's providence ensures the fulfillment of his promises, the fulfillment of his promises for our redemption. God's providence ensures it. And we'll unpack that by looking at the day's proceedings, the Lord's providence, and the Lord's promises. First, the day's proceedings. We have to actually do a little bit of review. If, if this was a TV show, the sort of previously on Ruth part. Um, we left off last week seeing that Ruth had proposed to Boaz. And the reason that Ruth proposed to Boaz is because he is a relative of her deceased husband, and therefore Boaz is what the book continually refers to as a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer. Now to understand this, you need to understand something of the Old Testament kinsman redeemer laws. Okay, so in the Mosaic law, there were several items that the Lord continually emphasized and made very clear to his people that, that these were of primary importance. It was extremely important, therefore, that God's people take care of orphans and widows. It was extremely important that God's people multiplied their tribe and their nation as a whole. And to that end, it was extremely important that God's people perpetuated the name of particular families within their nation and tribes. And it was extremely important that God's people kept the family land in family hands. This was the promised land, and having stake in the promised land was extremely important. So it was extremely important for family lands to be kept in family hands. And if you recall, in Ruth chapter 1, the family of Elimelech and Naomi fell into trouble in pretty much every way you could imagine when it came to these issues. They fell into trouble because Naomi and Ruth were widowed and now childless. Their family name was in danger of being snuffed out. They were in danger of losing their lands because they could no longer hold them. But God, in his mercy and kindness, made provision for them in the Mosaic law that such cases were not without hope to ensure that the widows of the dead were taken care of, to ensure that the family name continued on and the, the family lands be kept safe, to ensure the tribes continued to multiply, God instituted kinsman-redeemer laws. A kinsman-redeemer, then, was a relative of those afflicted who was called to step in and protect and redeem the afflicted family. And he could do this in a number of ways. He might buy back a field that had been sold in a season of financial distress, redeeming a family's property. He might buy a family member out of slavery, redeeming a person. He might avenge the death of a family member, redeeming their blood. He might marry a relative's widowed wife and have a child with her, thereby redeeming their family name and inheritance. These are all kind of specific situations mentioned in the Mosaic Laws regarding how relatives ought to act as kinsmen redeemers whenever families' lives or lands were threatened. And now as it pertains to the story in Ruth, Boaz was a relative of Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech. And while we don't know how he was related to Elimelech, he was a close enough relative to serve as a kinsman redeemer, uh, redeemer candidate. 
This is why Naomi cooked up this whole strategy and sent Ruth to ask his hand in marriage. And now last week, we saw how this played out, right? So Ruth went to where Boaz was sleeping in the middle of the night and laid at his feet, and he woke up startled, afraid at this random person sitting at his feet in the dark, and he inquired about who was laying there, and Ruth identified herself, and she popped the question, as it were. And making this, this kind of untraditional marriage proposal. But being a man of integrity, a man of honor, uh, Boaz expresses his gratitude toward Ruth for the request, and he expresses a willingness to take her hand in marriage. But there's a hiccup. There's a snag in the story. There's actually a relative who is closer, who's more closely related to Elimelech than Boaz is. So at the very least, this man must be consulted. Yet this is, this is troubling to us, isn't it? Because we don't want Ruth to marry this other man. We don't know him. We, we know Boaz. We know he's righteous. He's a man of integrity. He's good. He is honest. And yet, as a man of integrity and honesty, Boaz won't move forward with acquiring Elimelech's land and Ruth's hand in marriage until he's sure that he can do so in a legal and moral manner. So Ruth goes back home. She speaks with Naomi. She tells Naomi all that took place. And she's obviously worried because Naomi gives her an assuring word, basically says to her, don't fret. Don't, don't be afraid. Boaz won't rest. He's going to settle this matter today. And that's where we see, that's what we're, where we begin in chapter 4 here. Boaz settling the matter today. So first thing first, the, the, the days preceding start with Boaz making his way to the town gate. Now it may seem strange to us that, that they would basically hold a, a kind of legal proceeding. They'd hold court right there at the town gate. Uh, but this is basically where they did most business in those days. The town gate was like the courthouse, the town square, city hall, all rolled into one. And so if you wanted to buy or sell something, you'd do it there. If you wanted to announce something to the general public, if, if you wanted to hold a court proceeding, this is all where it happened. This is all where it took place. And so Boaz goes to the town gate until the nearer kinsman redeemer walks by. And when he does, Boaz pulls him aside along with ten town elders so that they can serve as witnesses to the meeting. And there's something interesting about the way that the author of the book of Ruth writes about this nearer kinsman redeemer. He, he never actually gives him a name. So the ESV translates Boaz's greeting in verse 1 as, Turn aside, friend. Turn aside, friend. Now the, the phrase translated as friend is an interesting phrase. It's this Hebrew phrase, two words, and it actually rhymes. It's poloni alimony. Poloni alimony. And I, I'm not sure why the translators translate it as friend, because Old Testament scholars seem to be in full agreement that it actually means something closer to what we mean when we call people like Mr. So-and-so. Um, the Young's literal translation actually translates this verse as, turn aside such a one, such a one. It means something like, you know, it's a clunky way to put it, but it means something like Mr. So-and-so. It's, it's a way of intentionally not naming someone. Now, I'm sure that Boaz knew this man's name and that he most certainly did not call him Mr. So-and-so. But the author of the book of Ruth intentionally did not name this man. He simply designates him Mr. So-and-so, which is significant, I think, because as you may have noticed when we were reading chapter 4 of Ruth, 
the knowledge of a person's name is highly significant in this particular chapter. In verse 6, Boaz mentions that whoever buys Elimelech's lands also marries Ruth to perpetuate the name of the dead. In verse 10, he actually does the same, but he glories in the fact that he gets to marry Ruth and serve as a kinsman redeemer so that he can perpetuate the name of the dead. The ten witnesses in verse 11 pray that Boaz's name would be renowned in Israel. And then the the women, as they pray in verse 13, they pray that Obed's name would be also renowned in Israel. You see someone's name being perpetuated, someone's name being renowned, someone's name being known is of great importance in this chapter. And the author of Ruth seems to want us to recognize that Mr. So-and-so, he's not renowned. He actually, he's nameless on the pages of history. Why? Well, let's continue on to see why. So Boaz lets this this Mr. So-and-so know about Elimelech's land being available and in need of redemption. Now, remember, there had been a kind of famine in the land. And so, of course, during that time, there wouldn't have been much buying and selling of land. Everyone's just kind of hunkered down in survival mode. Um, But now the the famine is over, the, the lands are fertile again, and buying the land of a deceased relative probably sounds like a good idea. So the man is is interested and he expresses his desire to buy it. And we're not entirely sure why Boaz led with this information about the land rather than the information about marriage with Ruth. Nonetheless, what we see is that this Mr. So-and-so is indeed interested in being a kinsman redeemer when it benefits him. But if he, he buys the land, he gets the land, Sure, he has to take care of Naomi for her final years until she dies, but, but still, the, he acquires more land, he has more crops, he makes more, he makes more money. It's a pretty good deal. But then Boaz drops the news that in addition to the land, Mr. So-and-so would also be required to marry Ruth and to have a child with her in order to perpetuate the name of Elimelech and Malon. Well, all of a sudden, the deal isn't so good. Because that means that Mr. So-and-so wouldn't actually be able to keep the land that he's buying and pass it on to his sons. That means that all this land that he's buying would actually go to the children of Ruth. And therefore, this man would be spending probably a sizable amount of money and have pretty much no return on his investment. He'd be spending this money and investing his time only to hand everything over to Ruth's child. So upon hearing this information... Mr. So-and-so breaks the deal. He backs out. He says, I, I, I pass my right of redemption along to you, Boaz. So they seal the deal with this interesting practice involving sandals. And the ten witnesses pray that Boaz and Ruth would be fruitful. And the scene closes with verse 12. Now, part of what should particularly strike us regarding all this is also what ought to strike us as we read the book of Ruth as a whole, and that is that God is providentially at work in the midst of all of this. The Lord's providence ought to be on our minds here. It ought to be on our, because here's the thing, if you were to walk past this scene in this particular time and place, you'd see absolutely nothing remarkable. It's a scene you might walk by every day of the week. Legal proceedings, business meetings, town gossip, town announcements. These were all ordinary, everyday occurrences at this town gate. And then, But when you recognize, when we look at th- this day's proceedings from a 30,000-foot view, 
we're reminded that there's actually something extraordinary going on here due to the providence of our God. Now, what is providence? It's not a word you hear every day. And when we talk about God's providence, is what we're talking about is God sovereignly working through the circumstances, events, and proceedings of our everyday lives. You see, in the, in the created order, there are no rogue molecules. There's no such thing as an accident. There's, Hebrews 1.3 tells us that the Lord upholds the universe by the word of his power. Matthew 10, 29, Jesus says that a sparrow cannot even die and fall to the ground apart from the Lord. Job 12, 10 tells us that in God's hand is life and breath is the life and breath of every living thing. We might be tempted at times to see God as only having been present and at work in situations that we deem miraculous or particularly remarkable. However, he's at work in the ordinary stuff of everyday life, in the mundane, in the difficult, in the painful, in suffering, in the unremarkable, he is present and at work. You might remember Shane quoting Tony Evans two Sundays ago, God's providence is the hand of God in the glove of history. That's exactly right. The, the ordinary proceedings of everyday life are actually the work of God in disguise. In the ordinary proceedings of everyday life, God is present, he's at work, he's ordering all of creation, all events, all circumstances according to the counsel of his will so that nothing takes place outside the providential guidance of his sovereign hand. I remember reading a while ago a story told by David Foster Wallace at this graduation ceremony at which he spoke. He told a story about two guys sitting together in a bar in, in a remote Alaskan wilderness. And he says, one of the guys is religious and the other is an atheist. And the two are arguing about the existence of God with a special kind of intensity that comes after about the fourth beer. And the atheist says, look, you know, it's not like I don't have actual reasons for not believing in God. It's not like I haven't experimented with the whole God and prayer thing. Just last month, I got caught away from the camp in this terrible blizzard, and I was totally lost, and I couldn't see a thing. And it was 50 below, so I tried it. I fell to my knees in the snow, and I cried out, Oh God, if there's a God, I'm lost in this blizzard, and I'm going to die if you don't help me. And now in the bar, the religious guy looks at the atheist all puzzled. He says, Well, then you must believe now. After all, here you are alive. The atheist just rolls his eyes and says, No, man. All that was was a couple Eskimos happened to come wandering by and showed me back to the camp. You see, it's, it's, it's very, it's so easy to miss the providential care of God because all we see is the seemingly ordinary circumstances and interactions and events of everyday life. It's so easy to look right in God's providential provision and see just a couple of Eskimos. It's so easy to look at God's providential provision and just see Boaz talking with a few men at the gate. Do you see how God's providence transforms the ordinary, everyday stuff of life? We look at Ruth 4, and we see an ordinary legal proceeding between a couple of farmers at the gate of this ordinary town, 
And not just in Ruth 4, but all of the book of Ruth. It's about this ordinary family living off the beaten path in a small, insignificant town. They're small and insignificant people. They are farmers and foreigners and widows. They are ordinary and normal people living ordinary and normal and mundane lives. But don't miss what God is doing. Don't miss. He's using these ordinary people and their ordinary lives to give Naomi her life back. And ultimately, he's using these ordinary people and their ordinary lives to give God's people their life back. Similarly, my friend, you are an ordinary person living an ordinary life filled with ordinary tasks and days. You wake up you go to work, you change diapers, you prepare and eat food, you excrete that food, you go to sleep, and then the next day you wake up and do it all over again. Your life is shared with also ordinary people. You are sitting next to in this room, sharing life with people in this church, ordinary people. Look at the person next to you. They are not remarkable. I hate to break it to you. You're not an extraordinary person. You're not remarkable. You are ordinary. You are ordinary. Just like Ruth is ordinary and Naomi is ordinary and Boaz is ordinary, they're not prophets, they're not priests, they're not kings, they're not wealthy or extraordinarily gifted, they're ordinary folks living ordinary lives, but God is present and at work in the midst of all of this ordinariness. Therefore, your life and the events and circumstances and decisions therein are all eternally and ultimately significant. I know it's easy in the midst of all this ordinariness, to lose sight of the big picture of it all. That all of that ordinariness is actually the glove God is wearing to do something much bigger by his sovereign hand. He's doing something much more important than you can even imagine. He's using the ordinary life you lead and the ordinary lives of those around you as a glove to work out his extraordinary purposes for your life and for the life of his people. Because of God's providence, There's no such thing as rogue molecules. There's no such thing as accidents. That means there's no such thing as purposelessness. Everything, even the ordinary and mundane, are filled with meaning and significance. And if you're anything like me, you need to get this perspective because there's there's a kind of contentment that comes There's a kind of sanity that comes. There's a kind of peace that comes from knowing that the absurdity of everyday life, the stuff of everyday life is in God's hands and he's working it all out according to his plan. His providence means that there's meaning in the mess. His providence means that there's mission in the monotony. In the midst of it all, he's carrying out his plan, his plan for your life and his plan for the cosmos. I also want you to see here how God's providence impacts our character. Consider in Ruth 4 how, how Boaz, he moves forward with marrying Ruth and acting as her kinsman redeemer. And, and I want you to understand that Mr. So-and-so passed on this opportunity because it wasn't actually much of an opportunity at all. It was actually likely a very bad deal for whoever took this responsibility. They would incur a certain cost perhaps a sizable cost. It would take work, finances, time. And at the end, the kinsman redeemer would likely not have much of anything to show for it. And this is true for Boaz as well. Boaz isn't getting a good deal here. 
which begs the question, why did he do it? He did it because it was the right thing to do. He did it because it was the godly thing to do. He did it because it was the most just, most merciful, most kind thing, most said thing to do. And even though it wasn't the best thing for him, if you look at the result, it ended up being the best thing for Ruth. It ended up being the best thing for Naomi. Not only that, it ended up being the best thing for Israel. And not only Israel, it ended up being the best thing for the world, for the ends of the earth. Because it was through this situation and through Boaz's sacrificial decision here that God brought new life to Ruth and Naomi through Obed who brought new life to the nation of Israel through David and who brought new life to us through Christ Jesus who would come from this family. And now here we are calling this nearer redeemer Mr. So-and-so and praising the name of Boaz for his godly character and conviction. Mr. So-and-so was pretty much just looking out for himself in his own He was trying to order his life and circumstances in a way that wouldn't require much of a sacrifice. But Boaz was willing to sacrifice. He was willing to act selflessly for the good of others, even at great cost to himself. And you know, I just wonder what kind of sacrificial decisions, what kind of selfless acts we might give ourselves to if we have confidence in God's providence. If we have confidence in God's providential care, and there comes, there comes a kind of freedom from just trying to organize and order your life in just the right way so that you're protected and taken care of. We have confidence in God's providence. And we're able to act selflessly and to make sacrificial decisions and still have the confidence that he's ultimately going to take care of us and work all things out in the end. We're able to give when needed even when it seems like it might not work out in our favor. We're able to serve, even when it seems like we get the raw end of the deal. We're able to sacrifice knowing that our life and circumstances are never out of his control, never out of control of the God who loves us. We would be remiss also not to consider how this affects our suffering, how God's providence transforms not just the ordinary, not just our character. God's providence also transforms our suffering. Remember how the book of Ruth started. Chapter 1, we see Ruth and Naomi face nothing but ruin. We see death and devastation. We see famine. We see 10 years of childlessness. We see the death of Elimelech. We see the death of Malon and Killian. We see the tears of a childless mother and widow. We see heartbreak and brokenness. And of course, Naomi, in those moments, she looks at the broken pieces of her life and she struggles to see meaning in all of this mess. But now we come to Ruth 4, and we see that God is picking up the broken pieces of her life to make a mosaic that is more beautiful than Naomi could have even imagined. And I know, we we might be tempted to think of our suffering, our heartbreaks, our plot turns, our regresses as obstacles and interruptions to the accomplishment of God's plan. If we have confidence in God's providence, 
we can trust that instead they are the means through which he is bringing his plan to fulfillment. And if you have confidence that this is true, I, 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 know, I know the problem of suffering has often caused people to question or even to deny the existence of God altogether, the existence of his providential care, of his sovereignty. But here's the thing, if you don't trust that God is there, that he's got a plan, you're doomed to despair. Tim Keller has talked about how secular and atheistic worldviews actually gives the least amount of resources to help people face their suffering. And it's true because here's the thing, If you encounter suffering and there's no God, there's no providential hand guiding your life in all of human history, then your suffering is ultimately meaningless. It has no ultimate purpose. There's no redeeming it. But if the Lord is there, and if he is sovereignly, providentially guiding your life in the circumstances therein, then your suffering is transformed because of the Lord's providence. None of your suffering is wasted. He's actually working in and through your suffering and grief to bring about his good purposes in your life and in the lives of his people. He worked through the suffering of Ruth and Naomi to eventually bring them gladness and to eventually bring us gladness. None of your suffering is senseless. None of the mundanity is meaningless. None of the ordinariness is aimless. All of it is filled with meaning and purpose and hope because God doesn't make mistakes and he doesn't waste anything. He's at work in it all, working all things according to the counsel of his will, for the glory of his name, and for your good, the good of his people. We see this with Naomi and Ruth here, do we not? Let their story cause you to view your story in a new light. On this side of the coming of Jesus, you're bound to experience the frustration and absurdity of ordinary life and the tears of extraordinary suffering. You're bound to. It's going to happen. You're bound to face opportunities and decisions that might require sacrifice and selflessness from you, yet knowing that God is present and at work in it all gives a larger perspective the predicaments of everyday life. God's providence transforms the ordinary, it transforms our character, and it transforms our suffering. Because as the book of Ruth testifies, God is providentially at work in all things in order to ensure that his promises come to pass and ultimate redemption comes to his people. Look with me last at the Lord's promises. Pick it back up in verse 13. Notice here how the camera pans out, gives the bigger picture. So it says that Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. 
And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. That is an amazing story. It's a story that starts with a famine, but it ends with fullness. It's a story that starts with death, but it ends with new life. It's a story that starts with funerals, but it ends with new birth. It's a story that starts with ruin, but it ends with redemption. Ruth and Naomi were facing the possibility of ending their days in poverty and destitution. The Elimelech family name was facing the possibility of being snuffed out like the end of a candle wick. Yet the Lord fans their family name back into a flame. Ruth's arms are filled with Boaz and Naomi's with Obed. It's a beautiful story. But what's best about this story is not that Naomi's and Ruth's story is resolved and their situation redeemed. The best part about this story is by God's providence, he's using it to keep his promise to his people to send not just a kinsman and redeemer, for the Elimelech family. Rather, the best part about this story is that God is using their family and situation to fulfill his promise to send a king king and redeemer to his people. The camera pans out a little bit. And you see that Obed fathered Jesse and Jesse fathered David. You see, David came to be the king of Israel. He came to be the king of Israel to put an end to the day of the judges that we learned about just a few weeks ago. He came to defeat Israel's enemies. He came to give Israel rest. He came to deliver them from the violence and threat, uh, threats of the nations. Here's the thing. If you go and read about David, which I'd suggest doing, you see some amazing things. You see a man who was a man after God's own heart. You see a man with a vibrant prayer life. You see a man who ruled much of the time with integrity and justice. You also see a man who falls short of God's glory in some tragic ways, and eventually David dies, and he's buried, and his reign comes to an end. And those kings that follow him actually lead Israel into days just like the days of the judges. And so the best thing about David is not actually David. The best thing about David is God's promise to David. It's 2 Samuel 7. God promises to David that one of his sons is actually going to sit on the throne of the kingdom of God and he will reign forever and ever. The Lord will establish the throne of his kingdom forever and ever, he says. And then the prophet Micah actually goes on to remind and reinforce this promise. When later Israel faced dark times again, he says in Micah 5.1, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. And indeed, Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 9 about this prince of peace, of the, gover- of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. He will be the king of kings and lord of lords, and he will give God's people their peace. And I'm here to tell you this morning that the Lord has kept his promises. 
He providentially protected the family of Elimelech so that Boaz would father Obed and Obed Jesse and Jesse David. And then he goes on in Matthew 1 to show us David fathered Solomon and Solomon, Rehoboam and Rehoboam, Abijah. And then the family line carried on and on until Christ, the Christ, was born in Bethlehem. And for 30 years, he actually lived an ordinary life off the beaten path living in obscurity as a carpenter and the son, as a, uh, the son of a carpenter, being largely unknown, building homes and furniture for other everyday ordinary people. But then eventually he would step into the hustle and bustle of things. He would go to the town gate, as it were. And when he did, he didn't go seeking his own good. Like Boaz, he was actually seeking the good of she who would become his bride, the church. He stepped in to redeem her, even at great cost to himself. He entrusted himself completely to the providence of God, and he suffered. He was tortured. He was crucified, and he died, all according to the plan and providence of the sovereign God. But as only the God of all providence can do, it is through his suffering that our gladness comes. And he, knowing that the Lord is ultimately working all things out for the good of his people. He entrusted himself to God and he acted selflessly and sacrificially. But that's not all. He rose again on the third day in order to usher in new life into this dark world. And he ascended to heaven and he's seated on the throne of heaven and earth. And the Lord has established the throne of his kingdom forevermore. And one day he will return in order to give us everlasting life, the everlasting life which he purchased for us on his cross. And so when we look at the babe born in Bethlehem this Christmas, we can say with Naomi's friends, a son has been born in Bethlehem. He has not left us this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel, for he is to us a restorer and nourisher of life, because indeed he not only restores and nourishes our lives in old age, He restores and nourishes us with life eternal and his providence ensures that it will come to pass. And so as this Advent season comes to a close and we begin this week to celebrate Christmas, let's remember that this eternal, everlasting life is that for which we are waiting. Because here's the thing. Until that day comes, you may never experience the kind of redemption and reversal that Naomi and Ruth experience here. And that's true. Not all of us will have stories that wrap up so nice and neat. We have no such promises in this temporal existence. On this side of glory, we might have unresolved stories. We might have unhealed hurts, painful providences that are never taken away. On this side of glory, the broken pieces of our lives may well stay broken. We may not get an Obed, but we get something better. Because there was a babe later born in Bethlehem, and we get him. And because of who he is and what he's done, and because of what he's going to do when he returns... All of our stories, ultimately speaking, all of our stories will be resolved and all of our hurts will be healed. All 
of our painful providences will finally and ultimately be gathered up into God's overarching purposes and plans and be shown as actually being worked out for our good and for his glory. He is sovereign, he is good, and he has promised to do it. He, is, he will cause, ultimately speaking, the broken pieces of our lives to be made into a beautiful mosaic. He is bringing ultimate redemption. He is fulfilling all of his promises. His providence ensures it. Let's pray. Father, would you seal this word upon our hearts as we come to the table? Would you help us to see that Christ has stepped in to suffer for us, to suffer with us, and to be the healing that we so desperately need? We pray in his name.